Well, we're in our membership sermon series. We've been talking about some of our church's values, and we're using Psalm 23 as the scaffolding for that. And so just so you know, we take a one-year renewable approach to membership at Blue Ocean, and so we ask that every congregant re-up that membership every October or November. And we just ask that people who are members give and serve as you're able, and then this December you'll be able to vote on the budget and vote on new board members. So I sent out the membership booklet the last couple of weeks via email. If you didn't get that, let me know. There's also a few hard copies that are available on the table when you come in, and so you can feel free to pick that up. Just so you know, we do not assume that spouses or partners um, come as like a membership package, so each person um, will need to fill out their own form. So even just this week, I was like, I better become a member, and Rachel's like, I guess I will too. (laughs) So do both people. So let's start by reading Psalm 23 together. I feel like I can't, you know, read this psalm enough. I passed it out. There's a copy over there if you would like that. This is the Robert Alter translation, except that I changed the God pronouns to neutral. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In grass meadows they make me lie down. By quiet waters guide me. My life they bring back. The Lord leads me on pathways of justice for their name's sake. Though I walk in the veil of death's shadow, I fear no harm, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, it is they that console me. You set out a table before me in the face of my foes. You moisten my head with oil. My cup overflows. Let but goodness and kindness pursue me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for many long days. So this morning we're just going to focus on the first few lines there. In grass meadows they make me lay down. By quiet waters guide me. My life they bring back. So over the last few weeks, we've been talking about what it means to like, gather at the edges of faith and how I feel like we're a little bit of like an outpost of people who have been sort of traveling on a lot of different faith paths, and we, we've kind of come together in this place to rest and to find community. I don't know how many of you know your memes very well, um, but there's a meme that's like, rest here, weary traveler, for great adventure lies ahead. And that's what kept coming to my mind, because apparently I think in memes now. Um, (laughs) To help make the world a more just place, you know, we have to learn those tools of rest and recharging. Having done a lot of social justice kind of work in my life, I see a lot of people burn out because they don't learn the both and of it. So in the first four centuries of Christianity, the most common symbols of our faith um, that were found in art, were found in the catacombs, were the good shepherd, the fish, and the vine. Right, so the good shepherd, the fish, and the vine. And in the Psalms, we see that there are a lot of pictures of God, and most of them use military imagery. Right, we see God as a fortress, God as a rock, a deliverer, a high tower, a refuge, a shield, a stronghold. Right? And that's the majority imagery in the Psalms. But there's a minority imagery of God that includes God as a good shepherd. God as a woman nursing her baby, and God as a good father who's gracious and compassionate. And as a Jewish man, it's highly likely Jesus would have memorized the Psalms by the time he was 12 years old. And yet nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus ever describe God as a fortress, a rock, a high tower, or a stronghold. Those images aren't used by Jesus or any of the other New Testament writers. That doesn't invalidate those ways of describing God. 
right? Those can be helpful in certain circumstances, and they make sense in the context of a people whose cities were being attacked by raiders and by neighboring armies. And there's nothing wrong with saying that God is a mighty protector. But it's interesting that Jesus picked out the minority imagery for God in the Psalms for his own teachings, right? Even when there were rulers and soldiers of the Roman Empire who were actively terrorizing his people, killing them and crucifying them and overtaxing them and making them carry soldiers' packs for a mile at a time. But in places like Luke 15, we see Jesus talk about God as the good shepherd, and God as a woman who lost a coin and goes looking for it, and God as the good father who welcomes his wandering son home. And so I think that perhaps Jesus is elevating these more nurturing perspectives of God so that, one, they balance out the pictures of this more sort of distant, powerful protector, And two, I think maybe he just understood that his people needed this sort of gentler image of the creator in the face of so much violence around them, right? One that would lend a little more personal feel to this human divine relationship. And this is the intimacy that he would have learned from Psalms like Psalm 23. And the author of this Psalm, probably David, you know, was a shepherd himself before he became the king of Israel. And so David knew sheep. And he knew that there's a basic set of wants and needs that a shepherd provides for their sheep, right? Just food, water, rescue when they're lost, some protection from predators, the tending of wounds. There's a foundation of care. Can I get an amen from the miners who raise sheep, right? We see this same understanding of God in Jesus's teachings, Um, Like we see it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. And I'm just going to read this because I feel like we just can't hear this enough. This is also on your sheet. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet our Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Oh my God, I feel so called out. (laughs) Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of those. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what are we going to eat? Or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? But seek first God's kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Right, so there's no promise of perfect health here. Right? There's no promise of an amazing job. There's no promise that we're going to get the house of our dreams. Right? There's no prosperity gospel There's no promise of smooth sailing. It's just the opposite. Jesus says each day has enough trouble of its own, right? And he knew trouble. He knew trouble. One of his best friends betrayed him. The Romans eventually killed him. But while trouble is present, he taught that we can rest in God so that we can handle that trouble. And he found that source of strength in the good shepherd whose basic care and concern and comfort he could count on. Right? And then Psalm 23, we see David, he talks about that care. And then following that, he talks about being led on paths of justice. 
going through the valley of death, eating while surrounded by enemies, right? It's this same acknowledgement that life can be really hard sometimes. Can I get an amen on that? Life can be really hard sometimes. But God will tend to us like a good shepherd tends to their flock and will be present in the midst of that hardship and can guide us toward places and people that can help restore us. Now, I know some of you here have come from backgrounds where God has been depicted as like a cruel and demanding shepherd, one who expects like perfect obedience. And if you don't obey perfectly, well, you deserve what you got, right? And uses fear and punishment to get us to do things. Now, Vanessa um, shared last week, I'm not sure if she's online this week or not, but she was here in person and she was just sharing how for much of her life, her choice of following Jesus was born out of fear, And I personally found that testimony just really powerful, and I think it was relatable for a lot of people. I know some of you don't have that in your background, and for that, I'm really grateful. Like, that's kind of what we're hoping for the kids who go through this church, right? But many of you who find us do. And so healthy spirituality needs to spring from a place of trust and not fear, right? 1 John 4 says that we love because God first loved us, not we love because God does bad things to us if we don't or lets bad things happen to us. And so I see Blue Ocean as a place where we can hopefully try to rebuild that kind of trust with God if that trust has been compromised for you. Now, I know many of you have heard me um, preach using some stories of Rachel's and my cat, Obadiah, also called Obi-Swan Kenobi. And I've shared a lot of stories about how when we got him, he was like super scared. Right, two and a half years ago, we got him from the Humane Society. He was just hiding. And when we first brought him home, like he just, he immediately ran to the basement, found a little cubby in our furnace, like literally back where we can't get him. And there's some place he could jump that was like two feet high, and he got in the furnace. And that's where he lived for the next few months. Poor little guy. And so we knew that he had spent the first couple of years of his life on the streets, evidenced by he has a clipped ear. So I don't know if you've ever seen a cat that has like, it looks like somebody took scissors straight across it. Um, that means that somebody had captured him, neutered him, and then released him back on the streets. And that's a way they know not to recapture those cats. And so when he came to us, we knew that he had spent, you know, at least he'd been captured at least a couple of times. Those were probably not good times for him. And so he's living in our furnace, and to try and coax him out, Rachel and I would go down there with treats, and he'd come out briefly for food. He's very food-motivated. And I'd sing a song, and I I made up a song for him that I'd sing every single time I went down there to try and condition him to, like, this is associated with food and kindness and trust. I still sing that to him when he needs some reassurance, and it works. But it felt like forever before he started to just sort of wander upstairs out of the furnace. And when he'd do, he'd like tuck into the living room. And as soon as we'd make a move to pet him, he'd bolt back down to the furnace. Um, And so it's been a slow journey of trust building with that little guy. But now he's a snuggle bug. One of the zoomies was asking me about him because they'd only heard about the scared part. But now, like, he, like, drapes himself across Rachel every night when we're on the couch, and he just, like, lays there with his belly open and wants us to, like, rub his belly, and he sleeps with us. At some point, Rachel, um, last week, said she woke up in the middle of the night and put her hand out, and he came up and put his head on her hand and slept there. He even makes an appearance with visitors sometimes, especially if he thinks food is possible. Our friend Keely is a cat whisperer, and she usually brings um, McDonald's french fries, and that works very well for her. Um, (laughs) So a little like Obi, right? Obi had to learn that, like, even though his early experiences of humans was really scary, right? We're really scary animals. 
that not all of us are, that Rachel and I weren't cruel, we weren't going to make him do things that terrified him. It's that space. In grass meadows, they make me lie down. By quiet waters, guide me. My life, they bring back. And that might sound a little weird. That translation of makes me lie down can sound a little bit like a shepherd uses force, but that's not really how sheep work. It's not quite the picture here. Sheep can't be made to like lay down like a dog. They only lie down when they're well-fed and well-watered and when they feel safe to do that. And so the message is that God is gentle with us in the way that we had to be gentle with Obi for a time to try and rebuild that trust. And so part of our church's purpose is to be this place where people can feel safe enough to rest in God. And for those of us who already feel that safety, it can be a place where we can just have tools and rituals and stories and community and places to learn contemplation, things where we can continue to draw strength to carry on and those who, us, who are still trying to seek this basic safety and we need our bodies and our minds to calm down in church from past hurts, just know that that can take some time and we know that and we try and give that kind of space. So one last thought as I wrap up. I also really like in this part of the psalm this picture of quiet waters. And so I was just kind of thinking about that this week and, you know, like waters that have less movement are really rich in nutrients and biodiversity um, makes me think of Adam and Andrea, their backyard, they've got this pond and it's just got so many birds and so many insects back there. I think Andrea's running the Detroit Marathon this morning, so they're not here. Um, but all those insects and some fish that only thrive in that kind of still water, those things attract birds. And so this picture is stillness and beauty and ecological abundance. And so I want this to be a place where we can be, learn to be nourished by those sorts of qualities, by silence. Right, including the silence that we practice after our sermons, and nourished by beauty and awe and nature. And we're trying to embrace the parts of our faith that tell us that humans are not the center of creation, but we're part of a much larger strand, like a weave that is delicate and is wondrous. And so any climate justice action that we take and are working on that springs out of this deeper understanding of this oneness with creation. All right, so just to sum sum up and close this down here. The creator is trustworthy. We try and take a light approach here. We try to not have any judgment on where you've been or where you're going. We learn to be still and let our souls be nourished by silence and nature and prayer tools, contemplation, community. Sometimes things in life are too big for us to hold on our own, but they can be held in community, right? Doubt and grief and so on. And then in this place, I hope it's a place we can learn to feel cared for by the Creator and have these inner resources that we can draw on for our work in the world. And that includes enacting justice, which we'll talk about next week. So for our, our minute or two here of silence, we usually do silence or guided meditation. We're just going to do something really simple. I know that people make noise, so there'll be a little bit of noise, and that's okay. I just want you to picture a place that nurtures your soul and then just sit there and let yourself be just like kind of pickled in God's love in that space, however it is that you understand God. And I'll let you know when the time is up. Just come Holy Spirit.
creator in our week this week, we ask that you would help draw our attention to, to beauty, um, to nature, to things that restore us so that we can go about the work of repairing this world. And we thank you for who you are and that you are gentle and that you are a good shepherd and that you are kind and that you give us so much space as we interact with you. Help us to learn to trust you and to experience you as loving and as gentle. In your name we pray. Amen.